Many critics and fans of Ayn Rand think of her as belonging within the conservative movement. This view is often reinforced when prominent conservative figures often come out and say that they are fans of the Fountainhead and Atle Shrugged. And yet, Ayn Rand herself rejected this linkage with conservatism. She rejected it often and vocally. And she rejected the label of conservative. She did not believe she was one. And it wasn't simply that she was critical of conservatism as a movement. She repudiated it. Why? What did she object to? What was her evaluation of conservatism? Welcome to the New Ideal podcast. I'm Ilan Jurno, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Keith Lockage. Hey, Keith. Hi, Ilan. I think the a place to start here is to say a little bit more about this linkage with conservatism, because I think there's a, a real issue here. It's, it's understandable from a certain perspective why people put these two together, but then we should talk about why this is a mistake. Um, so the, one of the impetus uh, for this conversation today is the article that I wrote uh, in New Idea, which I encourage people to take a look at. But maybe uh, why don't you start us off with some of the reasons people think of her as connected to conservatism? I mean, to the extent that people associate conservatism with, you know, opposition to the progressive liberal left, and, and in some ways as being more on the side of, you know, free markets and capitalism and that sort of thing, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's natural to the extent that they understand what she stands for, it's natural to sort of lump her in with them. And, and her critics often sort of deliberately try to lump her in with uh, conservative people and views that they disagree with, uh, partly as a way of, you know, smearing her. And, and uh, we saw that a lot in the pandemic. I mean, the, the number of people who tried to associate some of just the, the most worst irrational views about the pandemic and how it should be handled and blame that on her, um, even though a lot of the things that they were saying she stands for is the opposite of what she stands for. Um, so, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons why people, it's natural to do this and why people might think of her as a conservative. Yeah, I think there's a kind of one-way relationship with people who read her books and then later in life or at some point think of themselves as conservative so that she does have an influence on conservatives to people in the movement or who, who vote in that particular direction or see themselves as affiliated with that um, movement. But it doesn't mean that she's part of that movement because you can have an influence on something and still be standing apart from it. And I think that's important. So when you, you hear about people like Clarence Thomas, who is a Supreme Court judge who likes to, apparently he likes to show the movie of the Fountainhead to some of his uh, clerks. And I think Ted Cruz famously in a 21-hour in a filibuster speech quoted from Atlas Shrugged and, and described it as one of his favorite books. So th those things are not surprising in, a, in, a, in an important respect because she is widely read and she's widely read both by people who think of, them, uh, of themselves as conservatives, but also by people who do not. And I think that's, that's an important feature of her appeal. Uh, before we, so let's dive into this question of what is it, how did she think of conservatism? What was her assessment of it? Why did she repudiate it? And to, to frame that conversation, I want to say that 
what we're describing is her assessment, not of people who are supporters of various conservative figures over time, voted for Reagan or not Reagan or whoever you think of as a sort of, uh, typical conservative leader. Instead, we're thinking of the intellectual spokespeople, uh, the leadership, the intellectual leadership of the conservative movement. And throughout the conversation, I'm not going to do it every time, but throughout the conversation, when I say conservatism or conservatism, I, I'm putting air quotes around it. I'm not going to keep doing that. But the, the reason for that is that Ayn Rand often did, and it was a way for her to signal, there's a real question what this term means. And it was also a, a way of signaling that she stands apart from it. But to avoid it being tedious, I'm, I'm just going to put that out there at the beginning and then we can, we can roll with that. Uh, and I think the other framing point to make here is this is Ayn Rand's view that we're going to discuss. And so it, it's framed by the period when she was writing public commentary. We'll talk a bit more about sort of the backstory of how she was interested in this phenomenon. But it's really um, drawing on her published statements from about 1960 through the early 1980s, 1981. Uh, is the sort of the bookmark for this. So the, the focus is not people who voted conservative and her evaluation of them. That's not the, the assessment. The assessment is, is of the intellectual movement as she saw it during her lifetime. I mean, there are implications for that, but that's not really the focus of our conversation. Yeah, I mean, her, her whole understanding of history and, and what moves history is that it's ideas. And so it's the intellectual spokesman and the and the the um, views articulated by the leaders of the conservative movement that she's interested in. She had a fair bit of experience with conservatism through the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, building up to the period that you want to focus on in this discussion. But I, I think it's worth saying a little bit about her background and, and um, you know, what her interactions were with conservatives and the conservative movement prior to this time, because I think it sets helpful con context for it. So for people who don't know that much about her biography, I'll just give the like the 32nd version. So she, of course, she was born in 1905 in Tsarist Russia. And she saw the communists take over uh, and change the country into the Soviet Union. Um, uh, she managed to get out, she came to the US in 1926. And what she expected, so she'd learned a little bit about America in school. And what she expected to find when she got to America was the land of the Declaration of Independence and the Founding Fathers. And what she found instead, you know, she was um, in the 1920, late 1920s and, and the 1930s, you know, this was the so-called Red Decade when America's intellectual leaders were staunch supporters of communism. So she just saw all the horrors perpetrated by, by uh, communism and its ideology and she thought she was leaving that. She came to the States and, and what she found was people um, advocating the same ideology here. And the progressive movement, you know, which was sort of a, a more incremental approach to the same collectivist ends as the communists, were, was in full swing, gaining political support. Um, FDR got into power. Franklin Delano Roosevelt got into power in 1932 um, and started to enact the New Deal um, this huge expansion of the welfare state and the regulatory state. So um, in, in the 1940 presidential election, so this is Roosevelt campaigning for an unprecedented third term in office. You know, he'd been putting his new deal into practice for eight years. And Ayn Rand, you know, thought 
that this is not a good thing. And she, she was very, act- she, she decided to become active in politics. She volunteered for the campaign of the, um, of the uh, Republican presidential candidate who's running against Roosevelt, Wendell Wilkie, who was, a, who was sort of a New York businessman who was going to you know, fight the New Deal. So she took time off from writing The Fountainhead. Um, she volunteered for the Wilkie campaign uh, to try to defeat FDR. She gave speeches in his defense. I mean, she wasn't just sort of stuffing envelopes in the newsroom. She was writing position papers and articulating ideas, trying to uh, really help make this campaign happen. And, and she became completely disillusioned um, even before the results of the election at the, at the total lack of firm, clear principles on the part of Wilkie and his campaign. And of course, Wilkie lost, you know, real badly and, and, and Roosevelt was reelected. Um, so this is some of her, so she was politically active. She was interested and she was trying to work with people, you know, in, within the conservative movement Again, to fight against the kinds of trends that she thought were bad. After The Fountainhead was published in 1943, again, she became very active in trying to rally support for uh, the the so-called conservative side. She joined a group called the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, which was sort of a a group of Hollywood conservatives um, who were alarmed at the extent of communist infiltration into the film industry. So you had people like Walt Disney and Gary Cooper you know, um, formed this group. And again, she wrote position papers. She articulated the moral and political principles that she thought were necessary to defend American ideals. And again, she ended up being disillusioned, disappointed at the total lack of principles and the general ineffectiveness of these groups. Um, so, so she had experience with people within the conservative movement who were trying to uphold so-called American ideals. Um, and, and the problem is with what, how they understood those ideals and what they stood for. So that's something we could talk about next is what, you know, Elon, what, um, if we think about in this period, you know, what is it that people saw conservatism as standing for uh, and what were they, you know, what were they standing against and what were they standing for? I think it's a great place to dive into the her analysis of conservatism, because if you if you were living at that time and you were reading the newspaper and listening to the radio and, and sort of trying to figure out what's going on in the world, what would your view of conservatism be? How would you understand it? And then we can look at how the leaders of the movement themselves articulated it. And I think a reasonable person would look at conservatism at that time, and the what some of the salient things they would pick out are it's there's an opposition to communism. I think that was one of the, maybe the salient thing. Opposition to liberals, so the other side, the other political faction at the time. I think uh, it, not opposition, maybe suspicion is a, is a fair way of putting it. Suspicion towards the, the calls for welfare state programs. If you think about what Roosevelt did with the New Deal. Now, this was now starting to really mushroom into many more other kinds of programs over time. And I think the one way that this would be captured by some of the political figures and some of the intellectuals is they, they stand, they want, quote, limited government, unquote. And, and then the question then to, to what you're raising, Keith, is, well, what does all this add up to? What is limited government limited to? What, is the, what, what constrains it? 
And this question of what conservatism was for is, I think, central to Ayn Rand's analysis of it and her and core to why she thought it was problematic. So you mentioned the, the phrase, uh, the American way of life, I think, just a few minutes ago. And I think that's really helpful because if you look at some of what the pol political figures and intellectuals were saying, that was their slogan or their, their um, keyword for this is what we're about, we're about the American way of life. And, yeah. But that doesn't really, doesn't really answer the question, <laughs> what is the American way of life, right? Yeah, I think you're right to, to so as if you look at the, at, at um, the dominance of, of, you know, Marxism and communism in, in the intellectual scene in the 30s and 40s, and then as you head into the period after World War II, when, when um, you know, this, when the communist bloc is expanding and this large looming threat in the world, as you transition into the Cold War, there's a lot of it, a lot of what was going on with the conservative with conservatives at the time is more so it's more a reaction against that like we are we do, we want to fight the 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 you know um, we want to we want to the, the whole progressive trend and and um, it, they see it they they see it as somehow moving away from the founding principles of America but um, and and that the American way of life, American ideals, these are things that they want to defend against these large geopolitical things that are happening in the world. But again, the question is, what do they mean by the American way of life? What are the ideals that they claim to want to be upholding? And I mean, for Rand, that's the most important question, because that, that's those, that's the, those are the principles that you're trying to defend. That's what it means you know, to, to uh, take this side of the conflict. Um, yeah. So I, I think this is where we can start to sketching in a bit her own critique of what was going on. And the way into the topic is to see that she had a, a philosophic view of what a free society depends on. So if you asked her, what is the American way of life? She would say it's something really profound. It's a, a view of society where individuals are the the unit they're the sort of the focus of society and, and and government and a free society is what the the founders built and they were influenced by a whole progression of intellectual development to get to the point where they found had this conception of a new way of organizing government so in her view capitalism is at the core of a free society it's a system that protects individual rights and underneath that political system is a conception of the individual's moral right to his and her own life. And that is the idea of egoism. And in her view, and this is a really important part of her analysis, is that the achievement of the founders is that they got to the philosophic ideas and, and built a political uh, application of those ideas. But the crucial moral ideas were left implicit in that system. So if you think about the Declaration of Independence, it, it talks about the pursuit of happiness and it's really individual focus. And that, that is all a huge achievement. It's not to take anything away from that. But her, her account is that this moral foundation of freedom needs a, a philosophic defense, an explicit, solid foundation to, for it to be... Uh, to, to ensure that the political system that is built on that 
can, can survive and, and be consistently protective of individual freedom. And that's what was missing. So it, this was one of the shortcomings of the American founding, which, which was an it, only implicit understanding or support for egoism or individualism and morality. And that this is what any defense of the American way of life needs to understand and needs to really provide a philosophic defense for freedom. And that is what she expected to see here when she came here and what she herself was really active in trying to provide. Yeah. And I think, and I think this became you know, completely clear to her by the time she finished writing Atlas Shrugged. So, so in the 30s and in the 40s, after she, after she completed the Fountainhead in 1943, I think she was still looking for allies in within the conservative movement, um, hoping that that there was an understanding or that she could convince people of what the the moral and political foundations of this country really are. I think by the time she finishes Atlas Shrugged in 1957, and we start to move into the period of the 1960s. She had worked out in full detail the essential principles of her philosophy objectivism. And I think it, 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 it's much clearer to what extent it's a radical departure from the prevailing views in the culture on both the left and the right. I mean, two features in particular, I think you can see would set her up already right in opposition to the burgeoning conservative movement. So, in particular, you know, her defense of reason. And as a consequence of being a staunch upholder, a defender of reason, the total rejection of any for, any, anything resembling religious faith or belief in the supernatural. And she, she has a radical theory of morality that basically rejects everything that people have held in ethics since the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the basis, I mean, what, what you were just describing about, about egoism as the foundation for individualism in politics um, you know, it's it's a radical perspective that she has on morality that informs the more views on the moral foundations of politics. So, we have a video clip um, by 1962. This issue, I think, is is completely clear to her that there's a basic contradiction at the founding of America between these implicit moral principles that that gave rise to our capitalist system of individual rights and. The, the prevailing moral views that have existed for 2000 years. So uh, if we could cue up this clip, let's take a listen to what she has to say about, about this issue and about this clash. Capitalism was the system originated in the United States. Its success, its progress, its achievements are unprecedented in human history. America's political philosophy was based on man's right to his own life, to his own liberty, to the pursuit of his own happiness, which means on man's right to exist for his own sake. That was America's implicit moral code, but it had not been formulated explicitly. This was the flaw in her intellectual armor, which is now destroying. America and capitalism are perishing for lack of a moral base. The destroyer is the morality of altruism. Altruism holds that man has no right to exist for his own sake, that service to others is the only moral justification of his existence, and that self-sacrifice is his highest moral duty. 
the political expression of altruism is collectivism, or statism, which holds that man's life and work belong to the state, to society, to the group, the gang, the race, the nation, and that the state may dispose of him in any way it pleases for the sake of whatever it deems to be its own tribal collective good. From her start, America was torn by the clash of her political system with the altruist morality. Capitalism and altruism are incompatible. They cannot coexist in the same man or in the same society. So I think this sets up the, the key point that I think we want to get to, which is the central charge that Ayn Rand levels against conservatism as an intellectual movement. And that, you know, in brief, is that it's intellectually bankrupt. So talk about being really frank and, and uh, uh, <laughs> to the point. It's intellectually bankrupt. So given the, her analysis of what is at the root of America's crisis, this moral crisis that if capitalism is to survive, there's a need for a philosophic defense of its moral base. Given that, what is it that conservatism is doing in the time that she's seeing it in the, from the period 60s onward, I think. And her argument is that it's evading that whole issue. It's, it's looking away or trying to avoid it, sidestep it, cover it up with camouflage, this whole expression, the American way of life. She talks about how this is a kind of a smokescreen or, or just a, a way of talking around the issue and not really admitting that there's a moral question here that needs to be addressed. And she regards this as reprehensible. And this is, to just put this in context, she regards the liberal push or the, the progressive push for welfare statism and collectivism as, as evil. There's no question about that. She has no sympathy for that whole of her. She regards it as fundamentally evil. And she regards, but she regards what the conservatives are doing, which she characterizes as evading the issue. She regards that as even more reprehensible because what they're trying to do, seeming from her analysis, is they're trying to push freedom. So they claim to promote freedom, but to do it in a kind of cowardly or stealthy way, not really admitting what the issues are. And, and she regards this as not only disreputable, but it's, it's bound to fail. And, and she has an argument for why this is going to work out that way. So I, I think this is at the core. So it's an intellectually bankrupt movement that is scurrying around the core issue and avoiding it. And, and in fact, it isn't just a default. This is to the other element of her analysis. It isn't just that they're looking the other way. It's their unwillingness to question the predominant moral view, which is altruism. So if altruism is, is what has come to prevail in the society of America and is eating away at the foundations of capitalism and a free society, what, in her view, conservatism is doing is it's accepting that moral basis and then claiming to be for freedom. And so there's a, there's a fundamental contradiction there as well. And I think this is, we should talk a bit about how she regards this as a... Um, how, how this plays out in, the, in their account. Yeah, I mean, um, the clip that we played, uh, I think, expresses very clearly her view that 
in order to understand the basis of the founding of America, you have to you have to understand, uh, or, or sorry, in order in order to in order to um, support it and and uh, provide a philosophical foundation for it, you have to be willing to repudiate altruism. You have to be able. You have to be willing to say, you know, the dominant moral perspective that people have held since the Sermon on the Mount is wrong and and is actually in contradiction with the American way of life. And that's a hard, you know, I think that's hard for a lot of people to accept. And and um, it takes it takes courage of convictions and it takes a real understanding of the principles involved. And her view of 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 the conservatives is that they, in effect. They didn't want to face that issue. They didn't want to face the fact that what they were trying to, you know, they're trying to oppose communism, they're trying to fight the progressives, they're trying to defend the American way of life, but they don't want to recognize the fact that in order to do that, they've got to be radicals for, for a, you know, they have to have a radical reconceptualization of what the basic principles of morality are and how that leads into politics. So instead, um, as a result of not wanting to face that issue, you know, they sort of retreated to standard, uh, you know, the, the kind of um, uh, a set of arguments and a set of viewpoints that are totally ineffectual because they don't address these fundamental issues that need to be addressed. So, um, uh, so what are, so you, you wrote about, you kind of summarized her um, perspective on this and some of her views on these um uh, the arguments that conservatives would offer at the time. So what are so what are some of those arguments that they would offer, and what's uh, yeah? Um, let's talk a bit about those arguments. I, there, there's two aspects I want to draw out. One is the the arguments that they make in advocating for freedom, or their seeming advocacy for freedom, and what is deplorable about them in their view. And then the other element to draw out is the issue that. By conceding the morality of altruism, they, in effect, pave the road for their own opponents. And I think both of those are, are important for, th for understanding how she, she sees this. So let's talk about the arguments that she analyzes. And it, important to see throughout all this is she's looking at the dominant figures, the intellectual leaders of the movement, or the ones that she regards as serious and meaningful. So... It, 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 that you, uh, you know, if you studied the history of conservatives, you might find better people, and that, but that's not the issue here. The question is, were they influential in the movement? And in her analysis, the, the influential positions were the ones that she, she took on. She analyzed uh, three arguments that she saw as connected and that were really bubbling up to the surface among conservative intellectuals and spokespeople. And one of them is the argument from tradition, which is that the American way of life, this is how it's always been. We need to preserve tradition. That's what we're conserving. And for each of these arguments, and I'm not giving the full justification of the argument. I'm just giving you kind of a headline. The whole point of my bringing this up is I want people to go read her analysis because I think it's really trenchant. So this is just a headline level summary. But the, at a first blush, you can see that if knowing anything about the founding of America, Read just a, a bit of the Federalist Papers and you'll discover that part of what the founders were doing was breaking away from tradition. And they were really qu questioning all traditions uh, in political theory at the time. So th that's not really a, an, an argument grounded in the fact, it's, but it is 
a kind of argument that you might see people resort to if they don't feel they have a good positive argument to offer. It's, it's sort of something people often fall back on. It's always been like this. This is what we're conserving. Another one is the argument uh, from, from faith, which is the idea that this is, you know, God, I'm not sure quite how to put it, not in conventional contemporary terms, but sort of in the view of that um, this is, uh, America as a religious society at its root, and this is how we need, so, uh, the defense of freedom comes from some conception of God and religion. And this, again, I think really cuts against the history of how America came about and the fact that religion is not a, a political issue. It's, it's seen or was properly seen as a private matter in the development of sort of the political conception of our society. Uh, and she has a really go ahead, Keith. Yeah, and what I think also this is partly um, they're positioning themselves against the communists, and there's the there's a there's the perception that the that the 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 and, and this is a viewpoint that the Marxists put forward that they represent a, a secular scientific worldview you know, that's based on reason and they're going to, you know, the, the Soviet world is going to outstrip the West because um, they've got a scientific, you know, approach to the economy. Um, and, and so in response to that, the conservatives, you know, saw themselves as fighting the godless communist atheists, or sorry, the, yeah, the, the, the atheistic communists. And, and part of what we need to fight that is a return to religion. And Ayn Rand's view is, that, is, is exactly the opposite, that, that it's a mistake to view the communists as, even though they're nominally atheists, it's a mistake to view them as um, defenders of reason, defenders of science, because, she, you know, in her, because it, essentially what this perspective is, is it's, is it's a secularized version of a whole religious worldview, including the religious ethics. I mean, the, I mean, the, 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 the moral principles that are embodied in these regimes is, it's basically the Sermon on the Mount put into a secularized form. The idea that we're our brother's keeper, that uh, our, our, our duty is to sacrifice for the sake of others, whether, you know, no, it's so, um, in, in religion, your duty is to sacrifice for the sake of God, but in, in, the, in the secularized version of it, your duty is to sacrifice for the, for the state, for the proletariat, for the collective. Um, so, in her view, it's no accident that um, communism took hold and took over the country in Russia, because she viewed Russia as one of the most mystical, you know, uh, countries and, and the, the people of Russia were deeply religious with the Russian Orthodox Church. And, and there, there, it was an easy transition from the irrational mysticism of, of the Russian Orthodox Church to transition over to the, to the irrational mysticism of Marxist dialectical materialism and all the, you know, all, all the uh, irrational ideas that go along with that. So, so the idea that the way to fight, you know, the secular atheist communists is by a return to religion is exactly the opposite of the truth in her view. What's needed is, is, um, is, is a defense of reason. And part of her, part of what uh, the reason she's so condemnatory about this is because in effect, by arguing, 
by by accepting the idea that that the um, that the communists and the and the progressives have reason on their side, you're basically conceding that to them and saying that um, that freedom to defend freedom, you know, requires irrationality and religion, um, and that if you were going to be scientific and secular, yeah, then you'd have to be you'd have to be um, uh, a leftist. Um, and 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 you know, to her, that is a, a totally false, and it's the worst kind of concession because you're conceding that the, that they have reason on their side. Yeah, I think that's an important observation that you're raising, Keith. The idea, so she has an interesting perspective on how capitalism is seen and what appeal it can offer people and what kind of people it will attract and what kind of people certain arguments will push away. And combined with the third argument, which she characterizes as the argument from depravity, and that is that we're all fallen creatures, none of us is good enough to be a dictator, therefore we have to have freedom. That's just sort of a headline version of that argument. She regards that as the rejection of real ideals in human life and the idea that you can better your position in life. And it clashes fundamentally with capitalism, which is about growth and innovation and progress and making things better and finding better ways to do things, more efficient ways to do things. And it, it, it clashes fundamentally with her conception of the value of the human life and that what you can achieve in your life and that it's, it's proper and important to have a vision of your own life as something to build and, and develop and reinvest in. So you can see the, the fundamental clash here. So, and just to pick up on another thread that you raised, Keith, the idea of conceding so much to the opposition, this is something that she emphasizes as a, a, a real problem with the conservative view. And she, I don't talk about this in the article that I wrote, but I definitely recommend people go and read her own article on this, which I, I link to and quote from extensively, conservatism and obituary, because she points out that this, this is an important dynamic of how principles work and how premises, philosophic premises work. And when you concede something and your opponent stands on that for uh, not just conceding it, but advocating that position, there's a certain logic to who's going to gain from that and who's going to lose. And she has an argument about how the American liberals and, and sort of incrementalists advocates of collectivism and socialism are themselves disarmed in the face of communism because they share the same principle, but what the American liberals wanted to move in that direction slowly. So they can't argue against the communists. And she, she thinks that in the same way, the American conservatives are disarmed in the face of American liberals because they share the same moral premise. And uh, the American conservatives can't really challenge anything that the collectivist statist uh, opponents advocate. So what happens, she argues, is that when American uh, liberals advocate for something like the Peace Corps or, or supporting the rest of the world with foreign aid, the response from many conservatives is not, no, we shouldn't do that. That's immoral. It's, wait a minute, not Africa. It has to be Asia. So it's a question of implementation or not the Peace Corps. It has to be a more practical program. It's not, it's the details that we're, we're fighting over. But what's completely conceded is this is the moral right direction, morally right direction. This is what we should do. And then, okay, if you want to quibble about the means and the process and the timeline, we can quibble about that. But once you've conceded all that, you're, 
you're granting the moral sanction to that view. And then there really is no opposition, fun, principled opposition you can give to it. So in effect, what you're doing is you're paving the road toward that ultimate goal, even if in your own view, you're opposing it because you're saying, no, our foreign aid shouldn't go to these countries, it should go to those countries. Well, you still think that foreign aid is, a, is an appropriate policy. So let's just, we, we can get to the, our endpoint this way, even if you're going to slow us down. So this is part of her, her conception that there's a logic to philosophic principles and conceding fundamental ones to your opponents has a disastrous long-term consequence for you. And I think this is part of why she thinks of conservatism. And this is in the 60s, so many decades ago, she already saw it as bankrupt and, and impotent culturally, as having nothing to attract people and unable to do what it's claiming to be seeking to do, which is defend freedom, because it's conceding and letting freedom being, be eroded at every turn. And, and, it's, and that is part of why I think she regarded it as, as so uh, um, morally bad that this is what conservatives were doing. Um, so she has a, a really powerful way of capturing this, which is, I, I, I hope I've captured this right. So just take this as a paraphrase, not a quote. It's that a half battle is worse than none. Like if you're, if you're half, you're arguing in a way that's ineffective, you're really not doing your side any, any justice. You're, you're actually helping the opponents because you, you look ridiculous. And then the opponent looks much better as a result. And if you're conceding the fundamental premise you're actually hastening the, its success. So I, this is one more reason I, I think people should go and read her view on conservatism because there are really timeless philosophic insights here about the dynamics of how ideas shape movements and a culture more generally. So before we, uh, before we turn to the next Implication of what you just said, uh, let's just uh, give some thank yous to, we got some super chat donations here, uh, Jonathan, Mary Aline, and someone with a handle I don't, can't quite pronounce, but uh, we've gotten a few super chats, so thank you for uh, sending those in. Um, now, so you've been talking, Ilan, about uh, some of the arguments that she puts forward in th this talk that she gave, Conservatism and Obituary. Um, which is also reprinted in Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, uh, the book. And um, so this was in 1960. So this is, you know, very early on in, in, in um, well, so it, it's in the period following Atlas Shrugged, she already has a view that the conservative movement is completely intellectually bankrupt. The arguments it, it's advancing are worse than not even trying to argue that it's a half battle and, and it's conceding all the important principles to the enemy. And, and the only thing that can result from this is that, the, is that this side of the, of, the, of, of the political spectrum can only get worse and worse. And what's interesting is she's in effect pre predicting what the trajectory of the conservative movement is going to be in 1960. And um, you know, as you see it develop through the 60s and 70s, gradually you start to see that everything she predicts about the movement is coming true. And I, so what I like about your article is you go from this early analysis in 1960 to um, a talk that she gave in 1980 uh, or 81 towards the end of her life. Um, 
and and it's her perspective on what has become of the conservative movement by that time. Um, so do you want to say a little bit about that part of it? Yeah, so I, I think one way to sum up her view in the early 60s, and the, particularly the arguments in favor of freedom, is this is an abandonment of reason, the arguments from faith, depravity, from tradition, this is not at all what it looks like to give rational defenses of freedom. And it, it, it really goes against the tradition, if you're not, not in that sense, but sort of the legacy of the Enlightenment, which was putting reason and individualism at the forefront of thinking and political active activity. So that was what she thought of in the 60s. And one way she characterizes it is, this is the voice of the dark ages rising again in, in industrial societies. It's just how incongruous it was for her to see this. And I think the, the way to capture her perspective or some of her perspective in, by the 1980s or 1981, the speech that you're referring to, is the, that voice of the dark ages just gets more strident and more powerful politically because it, it's given, it, it's left to walk through some open doors to use that uh, cliche. And, and what happens is that the intellectual vacuum within conservatism becomes filled by people who have a, a view that the source of what conservatism should be, what the core of it is, more religion and, and a sharper turn against reason. So in, in this talk from 1981, The Age of Mediocrity, which we'll, we'll link to in the show notes, she looks at what is sort of in retrospect seen as the rise of, of the religious right in America. Um, she thinks of the activists who are coming to the forefront as militant mystics. This is our term, or militant religionists, because they're pushing an, an agenda now, not half-hearted, not, not kind of in a, here's what tradition would tell us, but just this is what conservatism is. It's, it's about being close to God, and God is the, is the sanction for what we need in society and even worse things, as we'll see. But it's, it's a view that if you, if you think in the 1960s, there's a bankruptcy and a turn away from religion, that trend really accelerates or becomes more, more central to what conservatism is about. By the time Ronald Reagan gets into power early in his tenure, so in the talk, Ayn Rand analyzes some of the positions that she regards as rising to prominence and influence within conservatism. And these are things that, you know, in the 60s would have been shocking to people. But by the 1980s, it's just like, okay, well, this is what conservatives are about. So things like creationism, um, you've, you've done a lot of research on this. And so creationism is really just the biblical story of creation dressed up a little bit to look like science or like a scientific account. And the advocates yeah. of this view were in effect saying, no, this, this deserves equal time with the theory that Darwin developed and later was built on, and that's very, I mean, you, you can tell us more about this, Keith, but it's really well established. I mean, it's, it's a theory in the sense that it's an account, but it's well, well justified by the evidence. So this is in effect saying, we need to teach children that the story of creation has equal standing with a scientifically rigorous account of the origins of species. And, and that's, that is a, a, fundamental rejection of reason and science. Yeah. I mean, we could, we could talk about that more in the, in the Q and a, but I mean, it's basically, 
taking the biblical story of creation and the flood, you know, as the explanation for all geological phenomena. I mean, I mean, and then just sort of slapping the label, you know, science on it. Um, I gave a talk once where I described it as, you know, the movie, this is spinal tap where he changes the number. So it goes to 11, <laughs> but really it's just 10 is just 11. That's basically what it is. They're just caught by, if they, if they put the label science on it, somehow it's on the same footing as, as biology. Um, I mean, so. I, I want to stress the one other, so there's more to say about her analysis in that talk and people should definitely go and listen to it. One other piece of the agenda that she analyzes as becoming salient and, and that is given political power, particularly the Reagan administration, not originating it, but giving it sanction is the vociferous attacks on on abortion, the idea that abortion should be illegal, the push against it. And for Ayn Rand, this is a, so there's a lot to say about her view of abortion, but she was convinced that abortion is a moral right and should be a political right of women, that it's, it flows out of an understanding of what it means to be free and have autonomy and sovereignty over your own life and being able to choose your own path in life, whether to have children, if you do want to have them, when you have them and not being left to chance and, and, and happenstance. So her view is that this was one of the lowest aspects of what the new religionist push within conservatism was, was advocating for. She, I mean, you, you can tell us more about this too, Keith, you've talked about her view of uh, abortion and the opposition to it. But one of the things that really comes out, and it's startling, I think, in her analysis, this is another way in which she's really uh, stands apart from conventional thinking, is that for her, it's a real question that can you have people like these, these advocates against abortion, the intellectual advocates and the political advocates who really have the interests of women at heart? And yet her answer is no way. Like this is, you cannot honestly believe that these people are all concerned with the life of the woman. This is a, a, a rejection of, of human happiness and, and the ability of individuals to control their own life. And is, I think she has a very strong negative moral assessment of that. Yeah, I think so. I think all of these things, creationism and the, and the rise of the, the anti-abortion movement, these are all... Um, it, and the and the rise of the moral majority and the fact that Reagan sort of uh, you know helped to bring this into politics. I think these are all examples of a trend that that she sort of was worried about in the '60s, and it came to fruition at the time that she's giving this talk, which is it's it's the rise of the idea that religion should play a role in politics. And I think this is what she's really rebelling against in this talk, "The Age of Mediocrity," that she gives in 1981. Um, and, and, and this is the danger that she sees as coming as a result of these. So all these, all these other things are concrete manifestations of that, and they represent threats to freedom and, and uh, reason in their own right. But it's, it's the fact that it's, it's coming together as part of a, an expression of this um, resurgence of religion into politics that, um, that she's really worried about. And I think that's that's well captured in your article. And then, of course, people can read her original. Uh, they can, you can actually hear her original talks or read them in the form of articles. But why don't we why don't we summarize sum up here? Because I think we're getting close to the end, and we should we should take some of these questions that we're getting. So, how would you summarize uh, 
what we've covered. Why does Ayn Rand reject conservatism? I think, I think it's pretty clear now. I think the, the key point is that she saw it as an intellectually bankrupt movement. And the, the way in which that bankruptcy plays out is it necessarily is destructive of freedom in different ways and manifestations. So what is it that they're trying to conserve so if we take their name seriously? Well, it's not capitalism or freedom or even the, the original system as it was conceived. It's nothing like that. It's actually the mixed economy, the, 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 the blend of freedom and pockets of freedom with growing elements of economic controls, regulations, and welfare programs. That's what she characterizes the mixed economy not freedom. So what they want is the status quo. And in her analysis, the status quo has long ago switched to becoming collectivist, statist, and anti-freedom in fundamental ways. And, and conservatives that she was criticizing were enabling that by having conceded the fundamental premise of what is a good life. And in their view, is altruism is the right view. And she thinks that that is the, the factor that's really undermining freedom in America. I think that is at the top level. Then part of the, from going a little deeper into this, it's that it, conservatism shifts, I think in the 60s, it's marked and it becomes more so as we've seen in, in, by the 1980s. And I think this is my view now, it's, it's, it's continued since then. It's this turn away from the core, the best elements of the Enlightenment, which are reason, individualism, and the idea that it's your life and it's for you to decide the path you take and how to achieve your own happiness, this idea of moral individualism and the, the political manifestation, capitalism. This is a real turn away from that. I mean, she points out that conservative leaders in the 60s were afraid to use the term capitalism. They didn't want to talk about it. It was almost like a, a, a dirty word in some sense, That's my characterization of it. You can see that she has an article about how they're dancing around the issue just in order not to have to talk about what is at the core, which is this moral foundation question. And I think this, just the, the final point I would raise in sum, summing up the, the analysis is that by packaging together faith and freedom, so telling people that religion and capitalism go hand in hand, they're inseparable, and having convinced a lot of people that that's true, even though it's not true, this has done enormous harm to the cause of spreading freedom and capitalism. Because if you're trying to attract the best sort of people, people who are looking for evidence and arguments and reasons and who are scientifically oriented, if you're trying to convince people like that, that freedom is the right way to organize society, as you've mentioned earlier, the communists and socialists for many decades were selling themselves as the, the spokes, this is the embodiment of science and, and, free, and progress, which is completely false. But there is this sort of view in the culture that social, if you're if for science, then you're for collectivism and socialism and communism. And then the conservatives have reinforced that by saying, yes, that's true, because freedom goes with faith, capitalism goes with religion. Her view, I think, is that the packaging of those two elements, capitalism and religion on one hand, and collectivism and science on the other, both of those are false. They don't go together. And the result is that you turn off the best people. You, you send them to your opponents because you get, if you want science, you need to go to, to socialism and collectivism. If you're willing to accept faith and authority, well, that's, well, you can just have freedom. 
And let's think about people, some of the people I admire in the contemporary world, a lot of them have come out of Silicon Valley, people like Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos. They're just incredible innovators, just heroic level innovation and thought and dedication to building a business. And that is the being on the scientific premise, whatever their personal views are, whatever their political views are, I think, but being that focused on developing products and, and building a business, you have to be fact-oriented. And I think it becomes a, a, a really positive influence on someone's life that they do that. If you go to someone like that and tell them, well, to take this perspective and make it a full approach to life, that means you have to uh, have faith and you need to ally yourself with creationism and you need to disbelieve Darwin. Well, that's crazy, right? Why would it, you, how could you possibly convince someone that yes, in the rest of your life, what success means is following reason, but politically, forget it, you need religion and capitalism. That's just such a toxic packaging together of things that should not be seen as going together. So to me, this is part of one of the things that, that motivated me to, to look into this and write about it is this, and this point, and it's, it, it seems like a, a passing comment, but it's really profound, is that the arguments that many conservative leaders were giving for capitalism were almost calculated to turn away the best, most thoughtful, most innovative people. The kind of the, the Howard Rourke's of the world, right? If you've read The Fountainhead, you know what that refers to. Someone who's really independent-minded, doesn't put anyone's judgment above their own, and looks at the world first-handedly. That was sort of what animated Ayn Rand as an artist, like pr projecting that kind of heroic character. And, and she often thought about the world from in terms of what is the best kind of society, best kind of person, meaning emotional and, and, and uh, uh, committed to the fact. And I think this is part of how to see her disgust with what conservatism was doing. It was, it was really turning off, so I think, some of the most idealistic and rational people um, in those terms. So maybe we should turn to some of the questions. I'm sure we've activated people yeah. on some of these issues. Well, I think, so uh, the, some of the questions uh, seem to be operating on the premise that we're, we're like attacking conservatives or we're trying to criticize people who might view themselves as conservatives, um, which is not really what we're trying to do. What we're trying to, what we're trying to articulate is what Ayn Rand's intellectual opposition to the to the ideas that were being put forward by leaders of the conservative movement were and why she held those views why she criticized them in that way in order to convince people or to try to convince people that she has a better way of thinking about these things so we have a super chat question that's uh that we'll take first it's a, the question is it's unre it's as unrealistic to expect most people to study philosophy at a deep level do you acknowledge that conservatives and libertarians are those who have the best chance of bringing into objectivism? And I guess what I would say to that is, uh, it depends why they view themselves as conservatives or libertarians and what, how, interest, how interested in philosophy they're willing to go. Because um, I don't think you have to study philosophy at a deep level in, in order to, you have to be willing to think about some of the issues that we talked about today, the clash between altruism and egoism, and what, is, what, is, what moral foundations are required to establish political freedom. You know, that's, that, that doesn't require getting deep into, you know, 
an analysis of Immanuel Kant or like there's 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 way deep you can go in philosophy. But I think to understand the differences between conservatism, libertarianism, and objectivism, you have to uh, you don't have to go that deep. And if the question is who has who do we have the best chance of bringing into objectivism? I mean, the people who are going to be interested in objectivism are people who are interested in questions about what is what are the right principles of morality for both for living our, one's own life and for establishing a free society. Um, so, and it's not obvious to me that um, that the best chance of getting people like that is going to come from the so-called right or the libertarians um, in the way that Ilan was just talking about, you know, the kind of Silicon Valley entrepreneur who's pro-science, you know, that some, but who might see themselves as sort of a progressive leftist. Um, as long as they're open to reason and they're willing to have their views challenged in a fundamental way about politics and morality, those people might, have be, the, have, might be the best chance of coming into objectivism because they're so pro-reason and pro-science. Um, so yeah, if, I can, if I can build on that, Keith, just to add a couple yeah. of other aspects. One is... We haven't really talked about it in this conversation, except it's, it's been in the background, but it's, it's worth saying. When I said that she puts conservatism in scare quotes, I think that's because she doesn't think there's a clear, it doesn't denote anything clearly. There's a movement, there are people, but it's not like you can easily define it. It's a very elastic term. It's foggy and deliberately so in her view. And the same, she, she has the same kind of a view of liberals at the time or what today you might call progressives. So it's not clear what it is that people, if you're thinking about people who identify that way, what is it that they're responding to? Maybe it's the better elements, or it, it, as the questioner seems to suggest, but it's not clear that if someone tells you they're conservative, you know anything about what their views are. Because it, the, today, at least, and I think this was true even, even in the past, there's so many views that fall under these nebulous uh, uh, terms that it, you just need to know more about the individual and what it is that they think before you can have a view of whether or not they will respond to Ayn Rand's the philosophy. So that's one aspect I would raise. Uh, and I think it's say, the same as you make the same argument about liberals. What it is that someone responds to when they say they're a liberal, it's not a coherent view that you could point to and say, yes, if you subscribe to this, everything else follows. It, people are very eclectic on top of that. And then just one other thought about this is just to stress, this is not a, 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 an analysis of people who identify as conservatives. It's Ayn Rand's view of the intellectual leaders of a movement and their negligence, their, their failure to advocate for the ideas of freedom. And a lot of what she's writing about, and she's addressing people who she believes have been misled into being supportive of conservatives. And she's trying to reach them, telling them. If we have this in common, if you and I both stand for freedom, I want you to understand what this movement is about. And I want you to see that advocating for freedom looks very different from what you're seeing today. So it's not, I don't think the right way to see this is she was out to bash people who are thought of themselves as conservatives, or nor, nor, nor Keith and I in this conversation. It's on, on the contrary. If, if you really value the things that are claim to be valued by conservatism, then you have to understand what it looks like to truly advocate them. And she, she encouraged people to see that it's a philosophic issue. It's not about 
sort of sort of the horse racing election stuff, which is has its place, but it's that's not the way to think of these issues. Yeah, I think it's important that her 1960 talk, Conservatism and Obituary, was given on a college campus. She was trying to talk, she was talking to students and she was trying to get them to think about what intellectual movements should they be supporting. And she was, as part of the talk, she's issuing sort of a rallying cry. If you really want to defend freedom, what you need is to embrace a, a, a radical reconceptualization of philosophy. In effect, you've got to understand objectivism if, if you want to. You have to be a radical for capitalism, which means morally radical. Um, so um, so it, it, it's, it's putting forward a positive vision of what ideas one should be advocating. That's what she... Um, that was her main focus. Um, so we have another question here. Did you did you have one you wanted to take up, Bilant? Um, Well, there's an interesting question that has come up about raising the issue of uh, tribal so collectivism and social justice theory. Um, and, and I want to just reframe the question a bit. So the, the question is asking, yes, we've been criticizing conservatism. Well, we've been talking about Ayn Rand's analysis of it in the past. We're not really talking about it in the present, though I definitely have views about what it is in the present. And so the question is, well, why aren't we talking a bit about some of the shortcomings or the, the basic problems with the other side? And, and I think if we can step away from the, the topic of the, the main topic of the discussion today, which was Ayn Rand's analysis, and talk a bit more about what it looked like to think about today's scene, I think one of the points she raised in 1981 is that conservatism was becoming not only religious uh, and hostile to reason and science, it was becoming more tribal. And she, she talks about this elevation of the family. And uh, she saw that as the f down payment on a kind of tribalism. And I think that's definitely something that's developed in conservatism. So if, if conservatism today is facing an, uh, another... The, an opponent that is tribal in sort of racial terms um, and in other terms as well, I think there definitely is tribalism throughout our culture. And I think that's another manifestation of intellectual decay on both sides. So both among the people who think of themselves as conservatives, intellectual leaders and so on, and the people pushing, however you think of the other side of the, or the other advocates or opponents of them, there's, there's no question that tribalism is rising, but I, I I, what I'm challenging is that it's only on one side. I think tribalism manifests differently, definitely is more noticeable maybe for some people if you look at the social justice type arguments that people bring up and the emphasis on race now. But it, it, I think it's a mistake to think that it's localized. I think it's, it's just, it manifests differently and it's, it's a problem in every manifestation. Yeah, and just my my take on the question. So the, the the questioner is saying, you know, today's podcast has been about conservatism. Could we also address the whole issue of social justice warriors and critical race theory? That's definitely something that we'll do on this podcast in the future for sure. But I think just picking up on what you just said, Ilan, it's interesting that the the um, tribalism has become so pronounced in our culture. That if we do a podcast saying why Ayn Rand rejected conservatism, I think people just automatically think, well, we're, if we're rejecting conservatism, 
then are we somehow on the side of, you know, the social justice warriors and the left or something like that? Like, you've got to be in one tribe or another. And what's what's interesting about Ayn Rand is the way that um, she's she it's she you can't pin her down politically because she had fundamental opposition to both the left and the right because her views are completely radical. And you have to look at her as an individual and you have to look at um, her ideas on their own merit. You can't pin her down as being on one as part of one tribe or another. Um, so. Um, so today we're putting a spotlight on why she rejected conservatism and definitely in other podcasts we'll we'll talk about why she and why you know her philosophy rejects expressions of views that are, that you would associate with the left or with progressivism and that sort of thing. So I think we're past time, but let's take maybe one or two more questions and then tell people, wish we could answer all these questions on the live stream, but join us on Clubhouse. We'll be moving there in a few minutes. And we're happy to talk more about the topic of today's uh, podcast and also take your questions and discuss some of these issues uh, in a smaller group. So this question from the Super Chat, I'm not totally clear. I, I understand it, so I'll, I'll do my best to respond to what I think it's asking. So it's, as written, it's authoritarians that supported the drafts weren't supporting capitalism. And I assume that this is a reference to the conservatives who weren't opposed to the draft or who were supportive of it. Um, and then the question asks as well, or national service question marks. So I, I'm, I'm not totally sure what the question is driving at, but what's important, I think, in thinking about the draft, it was that Ayn Rand was standing apart again here in her opposition to the draft. This is the military draft, particularly during, if you think about during the Vietnam War. And her view was that it was morally wrong. It's one of the worst things a government can do to its people is to in, in, conscript them into the military at a time and send them into war against their own choice and in defiance of it. And it, the, she, she railed against this. And I think it's important that she, she, I think she, this is another reason for her disappointment with conservatives, because for her, this was, this is one of the starkest or, or more blatant ways in which a government can violate the rights of its own people and how it's completely inconsistent with freedom. And I think she was right to think that, well, why aren't the conservatives the ones sort of standing on the parapets and, 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 and shouting about this? And I think there was a, a conspicuous lack of opposition to it. I mean, not to say no one opposed it on the, there were definitely people who did and eventually it was undone and which is a good thing, but this should have been a rallying cry for anyone who was on the side of freedom. And yet what you saw is, is people, I think some hippies and other people who were rejecting it for reasons that weren't very good. I mean, <laughs> they were right to object, but their arguments were, weren't really convincing. Uh, so I think go read her article where she discusses the draft or look it up in the Ayn Rand lexicon. Uh, I think the place to read the, her account in full is Wreckage of the Consensus, which you can find online. But it's, it's another illustration of her view of what it is to defend freedom and how it is that, by contrast, so few people in the intellectual space and the political space really understand it. They, they, if they did, they couldn't honestly ignore the issue of the draft or treat it as they did. I think this is part of what her analysis of 
the left and the right or the liberals and the conservatives of her time brings out is that they, they just simply are anti-intellectual. There's a progressive movement towards less and less concern with ideas. Uh, and this is in the 60s. So imagine, I, I would love to know what you would think of today. Should we draw a line there and, he- and then we'll head over to Clubhouse in five minutes or so? Yeah, let's do that. So why don't we wrap up and tell you a bit about some of the topics. If you want to explore them further, we have some resources to recommend. One of them is Ayn Rand's essay, Conservatism and Obituary, which, as Keith said, originated as a talk and then became uh, adapted into an essay. You can find it in Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, and online, bit.ly slash conservatism obit, if you want to look it up there. Uh, we have other resources that you can look at. I wrote an article which uh, summarizes some of Rand's views from that piece and other places and also looks at how that her views, what, what her views were in the 1980s on uh, Reagan, in the Reagan era. And that is, uh, the title of that essay is, What Was Ayn Rand's View of Conservatism? You can find that at bit.ly slash AR versus conservatism or VS for versus. And we should say that the, the talk that we've been referring to, The Age of Mediocrity, this is her, I think, the final four-hole forum that she gave herself, 1981, uh, in response to what to Reagan coming into power, what does she see going on in the culture? You can find that also online, bit.ly slash Age of Mediocrity. And I highly recommend you listen to that. Fascinating analysis. want to tell you that on July... 21st, we'll, we'll dedicate this live stream podcast to a general Q&A. Ask, ask us what you want about the objectivist philosophy. Send us your questions ahead of time to get them in the queue. We had a lot of questions recently when we did this. You can email us, newideal at einran.org. We'd love to hear from you. And if uh, you send them early, you have a better chance of getting them in. So next week, we'll have another podcast. This time, we'll be talking about the situation with the vaccines. You might have seen many developments with those. On the one hand, people are being lured and bribed into getting vaccines because there's a lot of resistance with lotteries and and, uh, hamburgers and all kinds of strange inducements to get people to uh, get vaccinated. And then on the other hand, there are people who are saying we need to have mandates for this. So we'll be discussing the issues surrounding that next week. We hope to see you there. And as Keith mentioned, we're after we sign off here, we will be moving to Clubhouse. You can join us in the Ayn Rand Club. And if you need a link to Clubhouse, I know it's still restricted. You can find us on social media and we can link you with an invitation. We have, I think there's a way for us to do that. Hope to see you there. And if you enjoyed today's uh, discussion, please subscribe, click the bell, get notifications, like, leave us a comment. If you're on other social media platforms watching or listening to us, please like and share what you find and tell people. And if you want to suggest topics for us to discuss, if you have questions about what we've said, we'd love to get your feedback. Send us an email, newideal at einran.org. We read everything. We try to respond to as many as we can, but we love to hear from you. So please don't hesitate to drop us a note. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org 
forward slash membership.